It's that time again. Let's get started. From the Clatsop County Historical Society, an adventure in history with Matt Burns and Alana Quila. You should never be allowed to talk to people. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. And now, with today's adventure, it's Mac and Alana. Good evening, and welcome back to an adventure in history once again. We're creeping into another new week. <laughs> creeping. Creeping in. You're creeping into the week, are we you? We are, yeah. <laughs> holiday tomorrow, federal holiday, President's Day. So. And, and how do you celebrate President's Day? By not setting my alarm. <laughs> Is that what the presidents would have wanted? Probably not, but... Their wives and mothers did. <laughs> Do you so, think? Yeah. They probably wanted them out of the house. Right, but... Go to work, George. That's Go to true, work, yes. Abe. <laughs> Get out of the house. But Leave me alone. It's nice having the kids home one more day. <laughs> so it's All a holiday right. for some. All right. You got uh, your big word of the day? I do. I have my word. Okay. Humgruffin. Humgruffin. Yep. This is a lost word. Word it, we're bringing back. Is it a noun? It's a noun. Humgruffin. Yep. I think it is uh, somebody who uh, is not happy about the alarm clock going off and having to go to work. Sort of. This is could could be what I could turn into <laughs> if the alarm clock goes off and I don't need it on. An appalling, mm. hideous, and repulsive person. Uh, I was kind of close. Humgruffin. Humgruffin. I like that. I like that one. It's kind of funny. It makes you kind of giggle. I, I know of a number of humgruffins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I might start calling them that, and they won't know if I'm being insulting or what I'm being. Don't be a humgruffin. Humgruffin. It almost sounds like something from Harry Potter. Right, it does. So humgruffin. <laughs> All right, uh, so the big uh, history highlights. Yes. Uh, February 19th. These are things that happen tomorrow. 1473. Ooh, that's going back. Polish astronomer Copernicus is born. Oh, okay. So something I, I, I didn't do any kind of a deep dive in, but I'm curious... How does one make a living as an, <laughs> an astronomer, astronomer in 1480, 1490, 1500? How does one make a living in 1490 well, anyway? Peasant. Right. I mean. <laughs> I'm a serf. I, I take care so of he my was, little plot of land. He probably was not having to work, right? And he was able to study and yeah. there's my guess. I'm kind of curious if he was independently wealthy or... Or how he... That's my guess. Is he teaching some classes on the side? Is he doing some gig work? <laughs> Writing it down, right? It's all about do, keep, do, uh, noting. Doing some TED Talks. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, Copernicus. I just like saying his name. Yes. 1777. Congress overlooks Benedict Arnold for promotion. Oh, yeah. And he gets some hurt feelings. Should, yeah, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is terrible because he, he actually was a pretty good military leader. Okay. And he really was smart. He had he had a huge ego. That's the problem. Like, he thought he should be almost at the same level as George Washington. Right. And, of course, Ethan Allen was really insulting to him. Oh. But uh, then he's overpassed for a promotion. <laughs> Got a little grumpy. Yeah. But we do remember, remember his name because of that. That's true. He <laughs> yeah. turned into a what? A humgruffin. A humgruffin. Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, 1807, Aaron Burr is arrested for alleged treason in Alabama. I like that one. Didn't we talk once about how many times he'd been arrested prior to? He's not a good guy. Right. <laughs> he really <laughs> like is not a good lots guy. Of, lots of red flags. Uh, 1847, the Donner Party is rescued from the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And we've talked about this before, too. Do you remember? 
I, I believe we did because you visited the place where they were or where they first. Donner did. Lake in Truckee, yeah. Nevada is a beautiful lake. It's just to the north of Lake Tahoe. And it's like this little kept secret where the Donner Party camped. They actually, they, they camped out there, the surviving ones of the family. But there's there's this just huge, very deep, very beautiful lake. Um, and it's often pretty quiet and not uh, nearly as crowded as Lake Tahoe. It's very small compared mm. to Lake Tahoe, but it's a gem. Great and, hiking, and swimming. Did you have a picnic and have barbecue uh, I know. ribs See, or anything? You said that there? last time too. And <laughs> See, you say it. I, go, I, I have to go right there. I just I can't <laughs> help myself. Uh, but actually, I can't read my own writing now. I, just, I was seeing you. Yeah, I could tell you were like looking at what me, squinting. Uh, so I can't, I can't remember his first name, but Kellogg, after falling out with his brother... Uh, over the development uh, development credit and wanting to add sugar to cereal, joins Charles D. Bolin in founding the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflakes Company Ooh. Uh, in uh, 1906. I think it's William, but I can't read my own writing, <laughs> so I feel badly. But I didn't mention the other brother anyway. But, but you, th- you wonder if that second brother is like, oof. Right. Because... Um. You know, it's huge. Kellogg's. And I was thinking that's almost a highlight of or a highlight of the day. I thought about Were it. Were you thinking? <laughs> yeah. I was because cereal and how many kids? I mean, your kids eat cereal, I'm right. sure. Right. I, I mean. So, uh, 1913, first prize is is inserted into a Cracker Jack box. Oh. See, do fun. they even still have prizes? I don't know. Do they even still sell Cracker Jack boxes? They do okay. because I was stunned to see that. There is now not only a Cracker Jacks, but there's a Cracker Jills. Oh, <laughs> that's which, funny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to comment. <laughs> it seemed a bit silly to me. Yeah. I mean. But they're were, around. Were you, were you feeling left out by Well, the name Jack Jacks? now is pretty gender neutral, honestly. Exactly. Exactly. It is, could I be mean, Jackie. Yeah. 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 Um, but the prizes are stupid now. They're just like little stickers or something. And they used to be really quality prizes. Even, <laughs> even when I was young. Let alone when you know, Are you sure parents. that wasn't your seven-year-old brain telling you they were really quality? There could be. <laughs> uh, 1942, FDR yes. orders the Japanese-Americans into mm. internment camps. I saw that. Not a highlight. Right. Not a good thing. Right. And, and I really, truly have trouble. I, I'm not a, an apologetic for history, but I, I don't like putting our current values into previous times. We as a society, we as human beings, we have evolved. We know things that were perfectly acceptable a thousand years ago are not acceptable now. But I have trouble seeing any, like, hey, I can forgive you for this mistake. This is a tough one because a lot of these people were Americans. Correct. They were just of Japanese descent. Almost entirely, right? And just because they look different. And, And they weren't even properly taken care of like oh, we'll pay you fair value for everything and we'll right. get into this a little bit later so can i add my little two cents too because yeah, when please. i was looking this up in in her memoir eleanor roosevelt oh. <laughs> yes recalled being completely floored by her husband's action she was a fierce proponent of civil rights eleanor hoped to change his mind but when she brought the subject up, up with him time and again he interrupted her and told her never to mention it again never mention this again to me Right. I don't do a very good FTR. So she lost that battle. Um, yeah. And, and she was often his sort of sounding base, too. I mean, he... Oh, he, she was she was a moral compass. Right. Um, so possibly, yeah. or yeah, definitely should have listened to her on that one. 1968, the children's educational TV program, 
Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Oh, I love that. Debuts on NET. NET. It now it's PBS. National I don't know what, Education, Education Television. Television. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, but our history highlight today, the thing I think had the most impact on history, 1878. Thomas Edison patents the phonograph. Kind of leads to a whole bunch of other things, recording <laughs> and and the ability to send radio waves into your house or or car right now listening to us. Obviously, it's very important to you and I. So, uh, and since we get to decide. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. So, but yeah, that tied into all of his, uh, or so many of his inventions, right? Exactly. I mean, that was a huge one for, for so, led to radio and so many other things. So what I miss, anything? No, you got him. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So back to the internment camps. Yes. It affected Clatsop County. Okay. It didn't just affect the entire West Coast mm-hmm. and the United States as a whole, because I think it did affect the entire country. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was actually some Japanese people here in in uh, Clatsop County. Okay. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about what this all was. Okay. So laws such as the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 sought to limit immigration based upon nationality or race. These laws were generally successful at reducing immigration from the targeted communities, but little to, did little to address the labor demands that created the need for immigrants in the first place. Rather, employers would seek out new foreign laborers to contract with. This, in turn, would lead to new calls for exclusion. In 1900, there were 614 people in Clatsop County of Chinese descent and 53 of Japanese descent. You know, we talk about the Chinese yeah. a lot, but there that's 53 people mm-hmm. there. Uh, by 1940... These numbers had nearly equalized, with 139 people making up the county's Chinese community, compared to 96 in that of the Japanese. Wow, that's a drastic reduction. Yeah. Um, well, it's actually, for the Chinese, it's a, Correct, but yeah. 53 but in, in 1900 yeah. to 96 in 1940. Uh, so, importantly, among both the... Uh, the ratio of foreign-born to U.S.-born shifted in favor of those born in the United States, okay. indicating stable communities. Uh, and, and we're going to have some names we are not going to pronounce well here. I yes. guarantee it. So my apologies uh, if you know the correct pronunciation. But Ishimatsu Hayashi was one of the first Japanese immigrants to become a longtime resident in Astoria. Coming to the city in the early 1900s, by 1908, he had opened a billiard hall on Bond Street between 9th and 10th Streets. Hayashi operated this business until its destruction in the December 1922 fire that consumed most of downtown Astoria. Hayashi and his wife, Keo, raised at least five children in Astoria, living here until the forced removal of all people of Japanese descent from the West Coast in 1942, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor and U.S. entry into World War II. At least one Japanese-owned business still in operation at the start of World War II, Takio Kabayashi's St. Louis Cafe, I like that, yeah. on Bond Street, became, uh, which uh, between 6th and 7th, was forced to permanently close following the Pearl Harbor attack. Oh, so uh, moving to another story, this is Railroad History in and Around Astoria, Oregon, and it's by Lloyd Howell. Yeah, and this was just a little piece of uh, that publication. Okay. A section of the railroad tracks collapsed. The ANCR relied on Japanese section hands to correct calamities such as these. But this practice did not always set well with elements of the local population. During the weeks following, mobs attacked the workers who were Japanese in Klatskanai, Westport, and Rainier. The laborers were run off only temporarily with the ACNR, vowing to protect them. A boycott against the line for employing Japanese laborers was started in early 1901. 
the A and C are reacting by pointing out that it was unable to obtain white people to do the same labor. This is Interesting. A, yes, See, this is a, a point Japanese we've heard before. Japanese are doing the work, and now you don't want them, but nobody else is willing to do that And work. you probably still want a railroad. Hmm. Um, but there were still Japanese businesses here. Av- advertisements in the 1893 Astoria High School Quill says, Sing Long Japanese Bazaar and F.W. Wing Lee and Company Japanese Curiosities Fine Lacquered Wear. Another one, April 23rd of 1896 in the Daily Astorian. Japanese goods just out, just received what you, just what you want at Wing Lee's 543 Commercial Street. And another one in 1906, the city directory under a category Japanese goods. Yokohama Bazaar, 626 Commercial, the same company had advertised in the 1904 Astoria Regatta program. Dealer in all kinds of Japanese and Chinese goods. Visitors to Regatta can get nice souvenirs in Chinaware, etc., etc., etc. Kind of like that ad, etc., etc., etc. 1920-21 City Directory lists Kohara R and Company, Japanese Curios at 320 Broadway and Seaside. In 1925, City Directory of Astoria, under the category Laundries, Chinese and Japanese, lists three establishments. On Tong, 761 Exchange, and Watanabe 1, 386 Aster, both in Astoria and the Westport Steam Laundry in Westport. So I like that in above that, there was Laundries. Yeah. And then there's a separate category, Laundries, Chinese and Japanese. True, yeah. You know, you don't want to risk going to the wrong uh, laundry, apparently, back in, in 1925. <laughs> but uh, the one in Westport brings us to, in uh, the winter 2021 issue of Cumtuck, so just uh, fairly recently, an article entitled History of the Japanese in Westport, Oregon, by Ron Shizaski, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, <laughs> and I feel badly because he could be listening. Um, so this is an article he wrote because he was in Westport, and of course he was Japanese. My father, Shikazi Shizaski, was one of the early Japanese pioneers. He was born in 1878 and came to America in the early 1900s. He worked in the Alaska and Seattle areas before coming to Westport, Oregon. I would guess that would be around 1905. He was one of the earliest Japanese workers. As the number of Japanese working for the Westport Sawmill Company grew, he was made foreman of the Japanese. Somewhere around that time, he went to Japan and married my mother, Suyoko Yuisugi. Oh. That was U-Y-E-S-U-G-I. And again, I certainly... Um, Fully aware I'm mispronouncing these. The Japanese workers came to this country as single men searching for a better life and higher pay. Some of the single men later went to Japan and got married or sent for picture brides. Even at the peak of married workers, there were only around uh, 14 married couples. The rest were single men. In the 1920s, there were perhaps 60 to 80 single workers who lived in bunk-style houses, uh, buildings, housing three to four men. My father ran a large mess hall that served four meals a day. The fourth meal was at 10 and 10 p.m., when the swing shift would work from 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. This was six days a week. Sunday was the only day that three meals were served. Wow. It was a tight-knit community. They would only venture into town to shop at the company store or go to the 4L Hall to shoot pool, bowl, for snacks, for restaurants, and few even played poker there. I like that when he says went to the city, he means Westport. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So apparently they just stayed in the, the bunkhouses, or went to the mill, except for what he's talking about here. The big city. The big city. (laughs) In camp, they had their own small library. Occasionally, a Japanese film company would come and show Japanese movies. The number of children who attended grammar school and high school was minimal, since many families had moved away after the Depression had 
began to set in after 1929, and most were the children uh, were considerably younger than me. My oldest brother, Mas, was the most senior in the Japanese camp. In 1932, when he graduated from Westport High School, there were only four Japanese students in the high school. Sachiko and Chiyoko Nakamura, my brother Mas, and myself. In grammar school, uh, Mary Yamaguchi and possibly one other. My younger brothers and my father had decided to live in Japan after visiting his mother there, so the rest of our family grew up there in Japan. When I graduated from Westport High School, Chiyoko Nakamura and I were the only Japanese there. In Westport Grammar School, I didn't believe that there were more than three to four Japanese. During the Depression years, the sawmill was operating only one shift a day. Consequently, many of the workers had moved to other areas. Beside the sawmill workers, six other Japanese worked for the Westport Laundry, operated by Jean Konda and his wife, also a family that worked at the Westport Hotel and boarding house owned and operated by the Taylor family. This couple lived in a section one mile west of Westport called Taylorsville, which was developed by the Taylors. That line kind of makes me laugh. Taylorsville, yeah. <laughs> developed by the Taylors. Uh, there were 25 to 30 Japanese working at Nakata Slough for Mr. M. Nakata of Seattle, who operated the Oregon-Washington Timber Company. This was located between Westport and Wana, which was on the Columbia River. The operation was loading whole logs onto Japanese vessels that transported them to Japan. In addition to the Japanese at Nakata Slough, there were probably 30 to 40 Japanese working at the Wana Sawmill. There were likely no more than three families. The rest were single men. After graduating high school, I moved from Westport to work for the Great Northern Railway as a flagman for four months before entering the University of Washington. So he goes on in the article to uh, name some of the Japanese he remembers that were living here when he did. And so it's, it's a pretty good list. He's, he remembers them all. But there's one I want to point out because I, I just found this kind of fascinating. Among the Japanese living in Westport at the time was Newton Yusugi. His name was changed to Newton Wesley. As hmm. an optom uh, optometrist, he later became president of North Pacific College of Optometry in Chicago. Wow. He changed his name to Wesley since students had difficulty pronouncing Yusugi. Uh, which I hope I'm saying that kind of right because I feel like it's kind of easy to say, <laughs> but maybe I'm mispronouncing it. He had been credited by California Ophthalmology Association for fathering and fostering contact lenses as wow. we know it today. In 1960, he started the National Eye Research Foundation and American Vision, a school to teach techniques of contact lenses to doctors and optometrists. Westport. So, right out of Westport. Oh, this my guy goodness. basically like, creates contact lenses. That's amazing. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Um, Moving on, uh, more discussion about internments as occurred throughout the Western United States upon U.S. entry into World War II. All Japanese and Japanese Americans in Clatsop County were rounded up and ultimately removed to an internment camp to the east. Now, in Astoria, this forced removal took five and a half months after the attack on Pearl Harbor. During that period, the county's Japanese residents were subjected to a series of indignities, some formalized through government action, others carried out informally by their fellow citizens. The day after Pearl Harbor, longtime resident Henry Nomachi appeared in the local paper reminding its readership that Astoria's Japanese community went back 40 years at that point, that they had played a significant role in the raising funds following the devastating Astoria fire of 1922, and that he and the others in the community were making a big show of buying defense bonds to support the war effort. That night, 19-year-old Japanese-American Roy Shojima of Tillamook was arrested outside the Astoria Telephone Company building by a civilian volunteer patrol. He was there hoping to call his family to let them know he was stuck in Astoria. Instead, 
He spent the night in jail, reportedly, quote, for his own protection, end quote. Within a week, the federal government had frozen the funds for all Japanese immigrants, requiring that they submit paperwork in their second language in case they needed money to purchase things such as food. As this was unfurling, members of the local Chinese community as a protective measure began wearing ribbons with the word Chinese clearly spelled out. It is also in this period that local Japanese-American Tom Hayashi recalled his family's business being vandalized. So this reminds me of like after 9-11... Mm-hmm. When like India uh, Sikhs that wear turbans right. were repeatedly trying to say, uh, you know, that's not us. Yes. <laughs> and they were getting attacked and beaten up because people just saw a turban and made assumptions. Yeah. So it's kind of horrible that well, I've got a label. I'm Chinese. I'm not Japanese. Uh, while Astoria's Japanese community would suffer individual acts of violence uh, on the local level, ultimately it was the federal government that facilitated their vilification and eventual removal. The county's few federal buildings and their employees would be enlisted in this process. Post offices throughout the county were utilized to register all foreign-born Japanese residences. residents. This included, along with Astoria, those of Hammond, Warrington, Seaside, Wana, and Westport. Astoria became central to the actual removal of these residents, all persons of Japanese descent in Clatsop and adjacent Columbia and Tillamook counties were required to report to the Federal Employment Office located in Astoria on the southwest corner of 14th and Duane Streets. Ahead of this, all Japanese owners of an agricultural business were directed to turn over their farms, mm-hmm. gardens, oyster beds, and greenhouses to white stewardship so they might be maintained as part of the domestic war effort. Mm. Local teenager Helen Hayashi served as a translator for this. Wow. Immediate measures were taken when war was declared to curtail uh, potential espionage activity. An order by the Justice Department curtailed the telephone companies from placing international calls for anybody Japanese. On orders from the FBI, airlines, bus lines, and uh, railways refused to accept Japanese passengers. And all over the country, the FBI began to round up dangerous aliens, so-called dangerous aliens. 2,303 persons were in custody by December 10th. 1941. Wow. How fast was that moving? Mm. Uh, in Portland, Japanese had become part of the community. By 1938, they had built an import and export trade totaling nearly $1.8 million annually. They remained, however, a part of the community set apart by appearance, custom, religion, and now suspicion. On February 19, 1942, President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, empowering the Secretary of War to define military areas and to remove from them anyone who was considered dangerous or, in fact, anyone at all. Do you want to try to, to read um, the sure. order? Yeah, so here's the order, and it's uh, it says, uh, no, it's a flyer, so it went out, and it says, notice, in all caps at the top. Uh, headquarters, Western Defense Command and Fourth Army, Presidio of San Francisco, California, May 14th, 1942. This is the Civilian Exclusion Order Number 74. And so this was the flyer that would would have been posted around town? It would have been posted. It would have been sent out. It okay. would have been distributed. Yeah. All over. So number one, pursuant to the provisions of public proclamations number one and two, this headquarter dated March 2nd, 1942 and March 16th, 1942, respectively. It is hereby ordered that from and after 12 o'clock noon, PWT of Wednesday, May 20th, 1942, all persons of Japanese ancestry, both alien and non-alien, will be excluded from that portion of military area number one, describing as follows. 
all of the counties of Washington, Yamhill, Tillamook, Clatsop, and Columbia, state of Oregon, together with all portions of Multnomah County, state of Oregon, not heretofore covered by exclusion orders of this headquarters. Number two, a responsible member of each family and individual living alone in the above described area will report between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. Saturday, May 16, 1942, or during the same hours on Sunday, May 17, 1942, to either one of the civil control stations. One was located in Forest Grove, and one was located at 599 Duane Street in Astoria. So there we go. And there's a couple of other orders, but uh, I think we're going to talk about them if we keep going here. So alien and American Japanese farmers, truck gardeners, oyster growers, and greenhouse operators in the Astoria area were asked by the Farm Security Field Agent of General DeWitt's wartime Civil Control Administration, Carol Rycraft, to report to the U.S. Employment Office at 14th and Duane Streets in Astoria for information on the voluntary evacuation from coast areas, not later than March 25, 1942. Here they would begin arrangements for transfer of land and crops to operators in this area who can take over and continue in production lands now operated by Japanese. Evacuation orders had not yet been issued, but were expected soon, and Japanese were encouraged to settle their affairs as free agents and evacuate voluntarily to non-defense areas as quickly as possible. Mr. Rycraft promised to make every effort to see that full equities of Japanese and their lands or operations were fully protected in any transfers of properties or interests. Right. I'm sure that happened. Yeah. <laughs> a curfew for Japanese and other suspicious people, quotes, was put into effect. Under the curfew edict, Japanese, German, and Italian immigrants and Japanese-American citizens were to remain home between 8 p.m. and 6 a.m. Persons affected were forbidden to travel more than five miles from their homes except to settle their affairs at wartime civilian control offices. Violators face penalties of $5,000 fine or one year's imprisonment or both. So they can't go to work anymore. No, they can't go to work. They can't go to school. They can't go to school. They can't travel. But they have to pay rent. Yeah. Or buy groceries. Not sure when they buy groceries. Okay. Yeah. A week later, by the end of March, the army had begun the evacuation of all Japanese from the coast. In six months, it was complete, and over 100,000 citizens and immigrants had been uprooted and herded into internment camps. Suddenly dispossessed, not for any specific crime or overt act, but only on suspicion because of their race, the Japanese Americans were forced to sell their belongings for whatever they could get or take the government's offer to store their household and personal items, cars, trucks, or to buy them at blue book rate. Farmers who had spent years developing their farms had to let the land go for a tiny fraction of its value. Only a few were able to entrust their possessions to non-Japanese uh, friends to hold until the war ended. By June 8, 1942, the newspaper announced that all Japanese residents of this county and surrounding counties have been evacuated, and authorities said there is not one Japanese in the county now. Any Japanese found in the area from that date onward was subject to immediate arrest. Many thousands in the Pacific Northwest, as elsewhere, responded voluntarily, going to the assembly centers in Portland, Oregon, or pay up uh, Washington on the designated day to be registered and sent to internment. Most went to Minidoka, a relocation center set up in the near desert country of Jerome County, Idaho, or to Tool Lake, Tull Lake, uh, 32 miles south of Klamath Falls, Oregon. Tool Lake later became a sort of Siberia among the relocation camps where misfits and those who had acquired the designation of disloyal because of problems at the centers or because they did not fill out a loyalty registration questionnaire to somebody's satisfaction were sent. Concentrating the rebellious together resulted in violence in that camp. 
Um, so it's not really known if any of the local Japanese returned to Clatsop County, but uh, really we don't have any documentation that many did. Yeah. The so. economic impact had to have been powerful, though. I mean... Yeah. And, and you knew, you, you know, like if I had my laundry, nobody right. was going to buy it for a good value because they right. knew you're leaving anyway. So one way or the other, I'm getting it because you're not going to be able to take all that equipment with you or your farm truck. So And whoever bought those properties, right? I mean, it's not like running a farm is just something you can pick up. I yeah. mean, unless you're already <laughs> farming, right? I, I mean, I think that's probably what happened. Other farmers were like, like nearby farmers would acquire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, like, I can get it cheap and I just awful. expand my operation. And a terrible. Sorry to see you go, but my benefit for our country, for sure. Yeah. Just because you look different. Right. So fear, very, fear is very powerful. We, we continue to learn that from that. <laughs> we do very easy to hate somebody. Yep. All right. Uh, not an uplifting story today. Go make some history. We'll catch you next week and it'll be something uh, more exciting, uh, more powerful and, and more up, upbeat next week. Yes. Thank you for joining us for an adventure in history. An adventure in history is created and produced by the Clatsop County Historical Society and brought to you by KMUN.